we're in 1 John chapter 2. Now, we know that John wrote uh, the gospel according to John, and then John chapter 1, chapter uh, 1 John, and then 2 John, and then 3 John. And so each one of these are written by one of the apostles, one of the 12 apostles, uh, quite frankly, one of the uh, inner circle, one of the three that were in the top circle, inner circle of the Lord Peter, James, and John. In this passage, we find so much wonderful truth. Now, I know about uh, three, four summers ago, I guess it was, uh, a lot of our staff uh, assistant pastors, one of our goal was for them to preach through 1 John, the five chapters in the summer, and they did that. But I've been rereading it, and uh, there's so many good things I want to share with you. For the next few Wednesday nights, we're going to be in 1 John. Our goal is not to start at chapter 1 and go through chapter 5. Our goal is simply to look at tremendous truth that God has for us. And a lot of it is packed into chapter 2. And so I want us to be looking at that and glean the good things that God has for us and what God is saying to us and how he used the Holy Spirit Uh, using um, John the Apostle to give us this great truth. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer before we even begin into the Word of God. Heavenly Father, you're so good to us. I pray, dear Father, as we look at your Word tonight, that you will illuminate it. You will help us to understand it clearly. I pray, dear Father, we'll be able to apprehend the great truths of it. And Lord, perhaps there's nothing new to share tonight because it's the same word that we've grown up with and we've studied for many of us most of our lives. But Lord, I pray that we'll see it in a special way and help us simply to rejoice in truth that we perhaps already know. And I pray this now in Jesus' name, amen. So we're starting in chapter 2. I want us to read through verses 1 through 6, if you will. The Bible says, My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith, he abideth in him, ought himself also so to walk even as he walked. And as we look at this, we simply want to dissect these uh, verses and look into them and see what the truth is packaged here in these six verses. Here, you'll notice that John is referring to the people, his audience, uh, the recipients of the letters, which uh, includes all of us because it's found in the Word of God. He says, my little children. Now, that's not talking about age. He's referring to the fact that he 
has been one who has led people to Christ, who have led people to Christ, who have led people to Christ, and that's his audience. That's who he's writing to, people that have been led to Christ. Now, as a result of that, that includes you and I too, because the apostles led people to Christ, who led people to Christ, who led people to Christ, who many generations ago, and then one day, one of those same people told us. And that's how we came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are his little children in that he has affected our salvation. Now, I don't know if you'd trace your salvation back to the preaching of Peter, or maybe Paul, or maybe uh, Cephas, you know, uh, I'm Paul, I'm Apollos. I, well, that's not, that's not the issue. But the issue is that God used these close Christians, these early disciples, to share the gospel to a world in need. And then he left and went to heaven and left them with the gospel to share. By the way, that's the same commission you and I have, right? Amen. Share the gospel. That's our, that's our job. That's our task on a, a regular basis, sharing the gospel. And so that's why he is saying little children. And notice, first of all, our goal is not to sin. My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. So he wants to just lay it out there, and the Holy Spirit wants us to know that one of the goals of the Christian life is personal righteousness. Now, he's not going to get far before uh, we realize that we are not saved by our personal righteousness. And yet, at the same time, the Word of God emphasizes the fact that personal righteousness should always be a goal of every single child of God, of every believer. And the Bible tells that over and over and over again. Now, it's very clear that we're not saved by works of righteousness, which we have done. But it also says uh, we are saved and we are called to serve. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Uh, but we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Now that's the very next verse behind salvation by grace. So we're saved by grace, but we're saved to serve. And the Bible says we're in the world, but not of the world. And later in chapter 2, he is going to say, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, does that mean as Christians we don't ever have times where we say, Oh, I, you know, I love, I love this, or I love this, and, and that is happened to be in the world. But what he's saying is, as believers, our goal is always to set our affections on things above not on things of the earth. You might have a brand new car. Listen, it's just a vehicle. You might have a brand new house. Praise God for that. It's just a place to live. Don't ever put your affections in things that stay on earth after you go to heaven. 
By the way, our children can go to heaven with us, right? That's a good thing. So you can put your affection in them as well. Our goal is not to sin. And so he tells it over and over. And the Spirit of God is certainly saying that. And so our goal should be the same goal that God has for us and has put in his word that our goal is to sin not. That's the challenge of every day, trying to be obedient to the Lord. Paul said it this way, capture every thought to the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's a great challenge. That's not just deeds, that's attitudes. That's what we think. That's what we, oh, you know, I shouldn't have thought that about them or I shouldn't have thought to say that. Uh, So we have to be very mindful. It's not only actions we do, but it's actions we think. They say that sin of omission and sin of commission. Commission is that which you act. Omission is sin in that you do not do. To him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. That's sin of omission. Oh, I should go to church. Yeah, but it's our vacation. I should go to church. Yeah, but I know. Uh, it's, it's hot. It's hot. Uh, we ought to stay home where it's hotter. <laughs> it's hotter in your home than it is in this auditorium. Uh, you're probably not freezing in your living room, but you can freeze in this auditorium. And so sin of omission is not doing what we know God wants us do, to do, whether it's witness someone speak whatever. So our goal is not to sin. Romans chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? And so God does not want us to live actively as sinners and uh, Uh, consistently as sinners. It should be the exception to the rule in our lives, Uh, but uh, it is that which is introduced into our lives. None of us are flawless. None of us are perfect here on this earth. And as I've said before, Christ did not die to present you perfect on earth. He died to present you faultless in the presence of the Father. And praise God for that. Because if you have a theology that says you should be perfect on earth, you are going to be terribly frustrated and eventually throw up your hands and say, I quit. Because you're going to find no matter how many times you say, I'm not going to do that. You might find yourself doing that. So we're not saved because of our ability not to sin. We are saved because of our Savior. Romans chapter 6 verse 15 uh, strengthens that as well. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. And so in each of those passages, it's going to say God forbid, which is a very strong, may it never be. Uh, Don't even suggest that. And that's what that word means. But then he goes before verse 1 is over. But, or and, if any man sin, I guess he knew humanity, didn't he? I guess the Holy Spirit even knew the author, John, as he writes this. And if any man sin, yeah, they had to deal with that. 
And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. There's two things I want us to see about that last half of verse 1. First of all, we see the advocate. If any man sin, we have an advocate. Now, in Greek, that's paralekhtos, and it simply means intercessor, comforter, uh, consoler. We have a consoler. The Bible says he ever liveth to make intercession for us. And so Jesus Christ paid our sin debt, and Jesus Christ pleads our cause to God the Father, and that say, he says, uh, Father, uh, I paid for that. Yeah, I know, he messed up, didn't he? Yeah, I, I paid for that. Oh, uh, she, I know, she gossiped again, I'm sorry, but I, I want you to know I paid for that. I know, they're not perfect, but I paid for that. I know they're teenagers, they did something wrong, but I just want you to know they trusted me, I paid for that. And so he ever liveth to make intercession for us. Boy, that's good news, isn't it? He's on the right hand of the Father, ever interceding for us. He's our advocate. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says, For we have not a high priest which, which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was, all point, was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. And so we have an intercessor who understands us. He was tempted in all points, such as we are, yet without sin. He never succumbed, but he understands the test. He just made hundreds, we didn't. But he understands our frailty. He understands our challenges. He understands uh, what we go through. And so it's a wonderful intercessor who, as a high priest cares about us, understands us, and comforts us. So not only is he an intercessor to the Father, but he's also an advocate in that he is a comforter or a consoler of the Christian. Remember Peter went out weeping bitterly, denying Christ with swearing, and yet the angel of the Lord said, tell his disciples and Peter. And yet Jesus let him preach the, on the day of Pentecost where 3,000 people got saved. You see, God not only forgives us, but he consoles you. As a Christian, when we sin, we judge ourselves very harshly. Of course, it seems like we've been trained to do that, right? Uh, Oh, you terrible thing. But God is also a consoler to us and to each one of us. And we need to receive that consolation that comes from God. Not in that we make light of sin. No, no, that's not it at all. We continue to strive for personal righteousness. But do be mindful that when you fall... God understands you. He remembereth that we are flesh. He remembers that. And he knows what we are. 
And then secondly, not only does it mention that we have an advocate, but that advocate has a name, Jesus Christ the righteous. And it's interesting when you look at that phrase, there's no comma there. The righteous is not a description of Jesus. The righteous is who Jesus is. Jesus Christ the righteous. That's just one statement. It's not Jesus Christ, comma, the righteous. No, it's not talking about uh, quality of him. It's talking about the very essence of Jesus. Jesus is righteous. And when you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, the righteousness of Christ comes upon your heavenly account. And that is the only way the only way any human gets to heaven is to have Jesus Christ's righteousness on your account. We could all say, well, yeah, but, you know, I've uh, given to church or I've served in the ministry or I've done this or I've done that. None of that helps us when it comes before, before standing before a holy God unless we have the very righteousness of Jesus Christ on our account, by the way, that's what salvation is. That's what it is, is to have the righteousness of Christ on your account because you receive Christ as your personal Savior. And that is what gives us that right standing in the presence. So he is uh, righteous in his very essence and not a quality or an attribute is not what it's talking about. And then we get to verse 2. It says, Christ is our propitiation. And there's a word we don't use very often, and I want to dwell just a little bit on that. But in verse 2, and he is the propitiation for our sin, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So there's two great truths found in that one verse, verse 2. The first one being that Jesus Christ is our propitiation. Now, the word in essence means atonement. That is, concretely, an expiator, our payment for sin. It is not a down payment for our salvation. Jesus is the full payment for our salvation. Uh, and so he is the purchase or he is the payment for our sin. And so the atonement comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the propitiation. Now, it's interesting. Uh, I have a few quotes by a few theologians of yesterday in the 1800s and even some before then. The propitiation is as wide as the sin. So whatever whether you were a little sinner, whether you were a big sinner, whatever you were, Christ covered it all. And that's good news. So whatever your life was or whatever your life is or whatever your life will be, because when Christ died for your sins, he died for the sin of all your life, not some of it, but his propitiation, his atonement is as large as the sin in your life. It covers it 
completely. The word atonement properly means covering. It covers our sin. And so it alleviates that sin from the eyes of God the Father. As I said before, this is us with our sin. But you trust Christ as your Savior. He becomes the atonement, the cover. So God the Father looks at you. He doesn't see you with your sin. He sees his Son in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory, the Bible says. Here's another quote. If men do not experience its benefit, the fault is not in its efficacy. So in other words, if people don't get saved, the fault is not in the fact that Christ's death didn't pay in full for their sin. The fault is they did not receive the salvation that was freely offered. It's a gift. You either accept it or you reject it, one or the other. But Christ died so that every single person would have the capacity to trust Christ as their personal Savior. And all who do are forever forgiven. That propitiation is complete. Um, One theologian of uh, the 1800s said, the propitiation has its real efficacy for the whole world. To believers, it brings life to the unbeliever's death. The fact that it is not received means that you look at the sacrifice of God the Father in giving us God the Son to die on the cross for all of our sins, and He who knew no sin became sin for us, and for someone to say, I don't care, is the greatest offense to God because he gave his son so that they could go to heaven and not hell, and yet they say, I don't care. We need to realize before we trusted Christ as our Savior, that was our attitude. And though we never verbalized it, we lived as though I don't care. Until that precious day, we came to the truth and trusted Christ as our personal Savior. We didn't live God's way. We didn't yield to His Son. But when we got saved, it changed everything. And now our chief joy is to live for Him. Luther said, it is a patent fact that thou art too, thou art to a part of the whole world so that thine heart cannot deceive itself and think the Lord died for Peter and Paul, but not for me. In other words, you can't say, well, yeah, but I, I'm too wicked. I, you know, he didn't die for me. Yes, he did. Because as Luther says, you're part of the whole world. And he died for the whole world. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 5, this word is rendered mercy seat. Jesus is our mercy seat where sin is atoned. Now, that brings us back to the Old Testament where they went into the tabernacle or later the temple and the high priest would sprinkle blood as he entered because 
uh, without the blood, he couldn't enter. But then after he entered, he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat because that's where atonement, that's where forgiveness was found. Now, we do know in the Old Testament that was a type that forgave sin or rolled back sin, but it was all a picture of the day that one day Jesus himself would enter into the holies and offer his own blood, which he shed on Calvary, for our sins forever. I wish I had time to go into that, but that's all in Hebrews. Uh, And so you have the type, which is the Old Testament, and then you have the actual uh, occurrence of it is Jesus himself shedding his blood for all of our sins. And so he puts it on the heavenly mercy seat, atoning for our sin, paying for it in full. Uh, Romans says, um, in Romans chapter 3, verse 24, 25, and 26, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation, mercy seat, through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. And people ask this question all the time. How can that, how can that Christian say he's forgiven? Look how he's living. Aren't you glad you're not the heavenly judge? Fellas, your wife wouldn't even make it. Wives, your husband wouldn't make it. You say, well, he's good most of the time, but no, he's, he's not good enough. But praise God, he's just and the justifier of him that is forgiven. The forgiveness of Christ has nothing to do with our effort other than we place faith in Jesus. And he does it all. Having placed faith in Jesus, then we strive to live a life pleasing to him. Not for salvation, but because we've been birthed into the family of God and we want to reflect our Father and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The the usual Septuagint translation, uh, Septuagint is the Old Testament Hebrew translated into Greek, and thus it's called that, Septuagint. For this word, redemption, propitiation, covering for sin, uh, or as the King James says, atonement, This sin offering by atonement, the day of atonement, uh, the ram of the atonement, and it gives many different verses. I'm reading this from a commentary. They are also used for sin offering and for forgiveness. And here's what I want to read 
most of all, these words are always used absolutely without anything to mark the offense or the person propitiated. Okay, so let me let me share this. So uh, let me use this right over here. Here's a man in the Old Testament, and he comes with his lamb to the tabernacle. Now, the high priest, before he's going to take that lamb and cut its throat and gather its blood, what's he going to do with the lamb? We all know the answer. He's going to examine it, right? So it has to be a lamb without spot and without what? Blemish. Without spot and without blemish. Here's what you never see. Let me check your life. Let me see how good you've been. It's the lamb that is checked out not the person. Otherwise, the priests say, hey, I happen to know you. You're going to need 10 of those. (laughs) That that one little thing, I know know it doesn't have any blemishes. I I know it meets the, but I'm just saying, I know you, and uh, you live close to me, and my wife sees how you act while I'm at work, and I'm just saying, you better bring 10 of these or it ain't going to work. It's never the person that's examined. It's the one that brings the propitiation. You know, in your salvation, there's only one thing that God examined. His perfect son and what he did on Calvary for us. Remember, he told Martha, don't touch me. Or Mary, he said, don't touch me. I've not yet ascended to my father. I've got to show him. I've been the perfect sacrifice. John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. I know we're supposed to live a righteous life. But let me tell you, Christian. The devil is working overtime on you if you're spending time looking at yourself rather than your source of salvation. You are never going to be more Christ-like by looking at your failures. You're going to be more Christ-like by looking at Christ. looking at Christ. And I'm probably speaking to some Christians tonight and you come to church and you do everything you can to serve God but you still don't feel good enough. Let me tell you there's a reason that's true because you're not. Because none of us are good enough. There's none righteous, no not one, right? So you're not good enough. So stop looking at yourself 
And by the way, you're never going to get victory by looking at yourself. Because if you look to yourself, all you're trying to do is develop a stronger will. We're not saved by our stronger will. We're saved by a wonderful Savior. The high priest never looked beyond the lamb. The lamb was what he was there to judge. And if the lamb fit the requirement, that's all he needed to go the further distance. And God the Father only had to look at God the Son and know He's the perfect sacrifice. He's not looking at you to say, are you worth his sacrifice? Were you worthy of his sacrifice? The obvious answer is no, we were not before we were saved. We were not after we were saved. We're still sinners saved by grace. But praise God, we have accepted his son who is our sacrifice. Our propitiation. And that's what I want us to see out of verse 2. He's our propitiation. And here's the second thing I want us to see. And not for our sins only, <laughs> but also for the sins of the whole world. Christ died for all. All. For everyone. Not, not just a select few called the elect, but he died for everyone. That all might come unto Christ, if they would. Which we know they don't, but if they would, they could. Notice this, Jesus, as our lamb was slain for our sins, Jesus, as our high priest, takes his own blood to present as the heavenly payment applied upon the heavenly mercy seat, and Jesus is the mercy seat upon which his blood is placed. He is all of it. It's all of him. He's the one that took our place. He's the high priest. He's the lamb that was slain, and he is the Mercy seat upon which the blood is applied. It's all Jesus. Jesus is the mercy seat upon which his blood is placed. None other than he himself upon the mercy seat which he is himself. It's all Jesus. But the more you know about salvation, the more you ought to be grateful for Jesus. The easier it's going to be to fall in love with Jesus when you realize all he did for you. And not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, that phrase, the sins of, you'll notice in your Bible that is in italics. Okay, so anytime the uh, translators of the King James Bible, anytime there were not words in the Greek language that said that specifically, they had to put in words in English to help there be an understanding going from one language to another. 
but only in the King James Bible uh, were they honest enough to put those words in italics, meaning they are not in the manuscript. They are placed there to help you understand what the phrase in Greek means. Because Greek's not a word-for-word translation. Rejoice evermore, this one word. And so uh, they put that in there for the sins of the whole world. But that helps us understand exactly what it's saying. So literally it's saying, uh, and not for our sin only, but also the whole world. But the implication is also for the sins of the whole world. Not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, here's where we would have a difference with those who would say, I'm a Calvinist. A Calvinist believes in limited atonement. Christ only died for a select people that he foreordained would believe. Now, wouldn't it be tragic if God foreordained that you believe, but not your wife or your kids? But the gospel is for everyone. So here's where the Calvinist says the whole world does not mean the whole world. And that's exactly how they describe this. The whole world really doesn't mean the whole world. What he means by that is the whole world of believers. That's, that's what he means. So he says the whole world does not mean the whole world. Nor does whosoever mean whosoever. Nor does whosoever will really mean whosoever will. Nor does one died for all really mean one died for all. Nor does in that he died for all mean in that he died for all. They have a big problem with this whosoever. Christ died for all and the whole world. And God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Well, he means the world that would trust him as his savior. Well, thank you. But if that's what it meant, the Holy Spirit could have put that in. But he didn't. He just said the whole world. So pardon my simplicity. I'm just going to take God's word at what it says. Christ died for all. With my luck, if it was one of the elect, I wouldn't have been one. But praise God, it had nothing to do with luck. One day I heard it, and I could have it. If I placed faith in Christ, so I did. And I got it. And that's how you got it too. Romans chapter 1 verse 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation... To everyone who believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Anyone who wants to believe can get saved. The Jews represented God's chosen people. The Greek was not talking about just Greek people, but the Greek was a term, it meant anybody else. Keep in mind, these were Romans. They were living in Roman times, not Greek times. It was anyone not a Jew. The whole world. Romans chapter 10 verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Well, what if they're not one of the elect? 
It still works. To everyone that believeth can be saved. Simply put, Christ died for all sin of all humanity. It is efficacious to those who believe. Anyone who wants to place faith in Christ can. And all that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out. Any seeking sinner can find salvation. Hebrews chapter 11, the faith chapter. You realize it only mentions Old Testament saints. Yeah, but how about the Old Testament? Well, that's all it mentions in Hebrews chapter 11. And there's the Hero Hall of Fame, of faith. In other words, they got saved by faith. We believe that Christ paid the debt for our sins. They believe God would somehow pay the debt of their sins that they knew they could never pay themselves. And Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Same way you got saved. You believe God. We know the details of what we're believing. We're believing what Christ did on Calvary. They didn't know what Christ would do on Calvary, but they believed that God would some way, somehow, provide for them because they placed faith in God for their deliverance and salvation. They knew if they got to heaven, God was their only hope. They believed in him. Faith in God to redeem them. That's what they believed. Now it's 8 o'clock, and I only have verse 3, 4, 5, and 6 to go, so we're, we're in good shape. But let me say, verse 2 is where I wanted to spend some time on. I'm so glad to know that our salvation is not us, it's the sacrifice, which is Jesus. Jesus. And God checked him out and said, thou art my son. He's perfect. He's God in flesh. He's God a very God. In him bodily dwelleth the Godhead. In him dwelleth the Godhead bodily. Wow, that's Jesus. And he died for us. And he was the full payment. And keep in mind, the high priest never looked at the person carrying the lamb. By the way, neither should we. Neither should we say, well, I don't think they're, I really don't think they're a Christian. Let me say that God has that way of sorting it out because we all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We all stand before God. And if they're not Christians, they don't stand at the judgment seat of Christ. They stand at the white throne judgment where sinners stand. But it's not our job trying to figure out who is, who isn't, who's in, who's out, who's good enough. Let me just tell you the secret. No one's good enough. You'd have to be good enough before you could be the judge of who's good enough. And since you're not good enough, you might as well put that aside. That's the whole thing about the moat and the stick. We still got it. 
But praise God, we're forgiven. So in verse 3 and 4, I want to say, to know him is to want to obey him. Notice what it says, and hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him and keepeth not his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. So we know that we are in him when we want to obey what Jesus asked us to do in his word. Now, if you are reading that, that you have to keep all the commandments of God perfectly in order to be in him, then you have just said you believe in works for salvation, which all of scripture says, for by grace are you saved through faith. God's salvation is not on a merit system. And the reason it's not is because there is none good, no, not one. No one could deserve the merit of salvation. And so it's freely given. To say we know him, but to have no desire to obey him is someone who's lying to himself and others. Do you have a desire to obey Christ, to live for Christ? to let Christ rule and reign in your life? Do you have that desire? I didn't say, uh, do you, have you worked that out perfectly? No, I know the answer to that. The answer is no. But I didn't ask that. I asked, do you have that desire? Now, folks, I'm just going to sort of assume that because you show up on a Wednesday night, you, you probably have that desire. You probably want Jesus Christ to rule and reign in your life and you want to live a life pleasing to the Lord and you want your best to obey the Lord. That's, that's a wonderful thing. We're not saved by that, but that, that, that shows that he does live in us. When you were raised up by your parents, did you ever desire to please them? Well, yeah. Unless you, unless you had a tyrant for a mom or dad, I, I did not have. But yeah, I, I wanted to please them. Did you always do it perfectly? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I did not. And I got reminded of that a few times. I did not. But I always wanted to. And that's the same relationship we have with Jesus. Verse 5, we want to see, but when we keep God's word, our love for him is perfected, and we know that we are in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. By the way, in the book of John, the uh, people came to him and said, how, how can we work the works of God? How can we do these things you're doing? How can we do the works of God? Here's what Jesus says. This is the work of God that ye believe on his son whom he hath sent. That's the work of God. Faith, believe, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. When we make an honest effort to do that which pleases him, even though we're not perfect at doing that, the fact that we have a desire to do right shows that we are in him, no desire, no salvation. If you have no desire to live for God, I think that simply means you're not a part of the family. 
Yeah, but I've, I've gone down the aisle or I've prayed with several people. I've, well, I, I, I'm sorry. If you're not saved, you can get in the baptistry and go under the water and you just got wet. See, it's only baptism after you've placed faith in Jesus Christ. But once you place faith in Christ, then if you go under the water, it's not, hey, they got wet in front of everybody. No, they got baptized. Because it's a symbol of your faith in Christ and trusting the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. And it's a step of obedience. You're showing that I trusted Christ as my Savior and I seek to obey him in my life. I desire to obey him. It's, that's why it's called the first step of Christian obedience. It's the first thing God tells someone who's a Christian to do. And having a desire to obey God and live for God and do right, that shows you are a believer because unsaved people don't have that. They don't have that. Unsaved people aren't flocking to churches saying, Oh, boy, I just really want to go to church. No, that's why we invite them, invite them, invite them, invite them. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. It's not natural to them. But it is to us. And the sixth thing I want to see in verse 6, to abide in Christ means we are to walk or or live, is what it means, to walk as he walked, live as he lived. 1 John 4, 17 says, Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, as he is, keep in mind it didn't say as he was, because he ever liveth, right? As he is, so are we in the world. You see, you and I are Christ ambassadors to represent him, right? That's our job. And verse 6 says, He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk even as he walked. In other words, can people see Jesus in you and I? Can they see Jesus in us? When I was a young teenager, one of the chorus we sang many, many years ago was, Let the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. It was a powerful chorus. But that's the goal of the Christian life. Let Jesus be seen in me. Our salvation, that's all of Jesus. But our goal is to let Jesus be seen in us. How do we do that? By our actions, by our attitude, by our affection. Before this chapter is over, it says, this new commandment I write unto you that you love one another, which is not a new commandment. He says it's an old commandment. So it's always been the commandment. We're supposed to love one another. How's your love for others? How's your attitude toward others? How's your following the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, all of us could say, yeah, I need to, I need to work on that. 
And that's what we do as believers. Because we love Jesus, we're constantly working on our attitude, on the things we do, on the things we say, on the things we think, because he's in us and we want to please him. And we want to walk even as he walked. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Would you let God just work in your heart? And can you just see yourself as being fully redeemed because of the payment of Christ on Calvary for your sins? Are you one of the Christians that are always judging yourself and you're always looking at your life instead of looking at the Savior. And because of that, you always feel self-defeated. You never feel good enough. You never feel like you measure up. Can you see tonight that God's not looking at you? He was looking at his son to determine your salvation. He was looking at Calvary. And because Jesus was that perfect sacrifice, when you place faith in him, you are accepted fully, fully by him. And can you tonight honestly say, I do have that desire to live for Jesus. I I do have that in my heart. I want that. And, and I, I strive for that. I, I know I'm not perfect. I know I fail. But I, I do. I love Jesus. And I want my life to be pleasing to him. I do want that. May I say, only Christians think that way. And because you think that way, you are his child. And you think that way because he lives in you. That's why you think that way. His spirit lives inside of you. Tonight, would you just thank Jesus for the salvation that he brought you? And keep focused on the Savior and let Jesus do a transformation in all of our lives Because our focus is on him, not on ourselves. Heavenly Father, how I pray that you'll speak to all of our hearts, Lord. I thank you for this uh, exciting truth to me. I trust it was a blessing to others, Lord. I'm so grateful you died so that everyone in every country, in every continent of the world could come to faith in Christ, Lord, not just a few, but all, the outcast, the shunned, the lower classes, uh, all people can come to faith, Lord. And we're so grateful for that because that means we can come. And Lord, I pray that you'll keep our focus on you. I pray that our desire would be to please you. And I do pray you'll strengthen that desire, Lord, If it seems weak in any person here, I pray that they'd make that decision. Even tonight, Lord, I I want my desire to please you to be stronger. But it's only going to happen as you keep your eyes on Jesus. Lord, help us, we pray, 
Now, bless her in this invitation, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand to our feet. The piano's playing. If you have a spiritual decision to make, uh, would you come? You might want to pray around an old-fashioned altar. You might want to um, talk to the Lord about a challenge that you're going through. But let God do something in your life. Maybe right where you stand, if you will talk to the Lord about your relationship and where you're at spiritually, what you want God to do in your heart and in your life. God bless you, and so good to have each one of you here with us tonight. Uh, Dale and Tara Watts have come tonight to place their membership here at Grandview Baptist Church. They're wonderful people, and they've been coming for several months, and just what a blessing. Uh, They are very dedicated Christians, a wonderful family. Uh, All in favor of receiving Dale and Tara into the membership of Grandview Baptist Church, say amen. Amen. It's final. God bless you. Welcome to the family. Uh, As I say, we're not a perfect family. We're just people who love a perfect Savior. Uh, We're not perfect, but our Savior is, and we praise God for that. Uh, We try to do our best, but we're just human. Well, God bless you. This Sunday is a big day. Brother Justin has organized this, and so let me encourage you and call a few friends, invite some people, and Help them to be here if all possible. Uh, We're going to have a great time. Last time we did, we had over 100 more people in Sunday school. And so let's just pray that more and more people will come. And thank you so very much. Well, God bless you and you're dismissed. Mm